brother. Well, good morning, church. Please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. The title of this sermon is Faithful and Effective Ministry Part 2, so we will be continuing where we left off last time. And when you're at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, if you were able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, um, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And this is what God's word says, starting in verse 12. It says, when he, speaking of Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea and the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We pray, God, that you would be with us as we go through it this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is, uh, what is in your word, Lord, that you would change us and transform us by your word, that you would glorify yourself. We pray, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, that has not yet uh, bowed their heart and their need to you, that you would save them on this morning. We pray, Lord, for those of us who have bowed our hearts and our knees, we, who do belong to you, that, again, you would change us and transform us by your word. We pray, God, that you would remove me as much as possible from this so that I don't mess your word up, and we just pray in everything, God, that you get all the glory. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Please have a seat. So every week... I get emails that are trying to sell me the next great book about church ministry. It often goes something like this. Buy this book and go to this uh, 12-week seminar for three easy payments of, and then you can fill in the blank, or just do these seven steps and you'll explode in growth. It's as if they think that ministry is an algorithm, that if you just put these few things out that is guaranteed success as they define it will come out of the other side every time. And usually what's lacking in these books and these seminars is a biblical theology of ministry. Well, that is why I like preaching through whole books of the Bible, because eventually you come to a text like ours this morning that tells you a lot about ministry by showing you how Jesus ministered. I mean, he's the gold standard, right? Shows us how Jesus did ministry. And when we look at how Jesus did ministry, ultimately it's not about a success code. That's not the way it works. Instead, it's about a faithfulness code. And so it's the same as last week. The point of the text is this, because we're in the same text. It's this. Jesus shows us what faithful and effective ministry looks like. This is where we're going to learn about ministry. Jesus shows us what faithful and effective ministry looks like. And so, of course, that begs the question, what does it look like? Matthew, in this text, shows us what it looks like by answering three questions about Jesus's ministry. Where, who, and what? He's going to show us the where, the who, and the what about Jesus's ministry. And when these are answered, the where, the who, and the what, you get the code. Not the success code, but the faithfulness code. And that is where you're going to get faithful and effective ministry. So last time, We got through the first two questions, where and who. We went from verse 12 all the way to 22. 
Okay, I also uh, let us know last time that Matthew is done with his introduction of Jesus, because the first few chapters are all just an introduction to Jesus. He showed us who Jesus is, where he was born, where he was raised, how he was anointed as Messiah, and how he overcame the failures of both Adam and Israel. That's what's been shown so far. Now, once that's all demonstrated, which it is, Matthew can now move us into the Acts of the actual ministry of Jesus itself, right? He can move us to the work of our Savior. And that's what he's now doing starting in our text. So in our text this morning, what Matthew's really giving us is just a summary. It's a summary of Jesus's ministry to set up the details that we're going to get later in the book of Matthew, okay? And I also mentioned, just so that we know how this book's arranged, that the book of Matthew is divided into five big sections. That's how Matthew arranged it, right? And in each section, there's two things, what Jesus taught and what Jesus did, his, his words and his works, okay, his doctrine and his deeds. In each of the five sections, you'll see those two things. Well, our text this morning actually leads us into the first of those five sections, and I'll, I'll show you that in a minute, okay? But I want to talk about, just real quickly, review what we got through last week, okay? Um, even though this is a summary, even though it's a summary of Jesus' ministry, it does teach us some important things. It teaches us that Jesus ministered exactly where he was supposed to. That's why I said there's a where to ministry. He ministered in Galilee. Why Galilee? Because this was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Okay? The text also teaches us who Jesus did ministry with. He called disciples, he trained disciples for the purpose of ministering with him. So there's a where and there's a who. His ministry shows us that the faithful and effective ministry has both of those, right? And it's also going to have a what, but I'm going to get to that. But for our purposes, just by, by way of memory, where should ministry be done? Simply in the right place, in the place that God appoints. For Jesus, it was Galilee at this point in time. For us, for you, it's going to be in your church, it's going to be in your neighborhood, it's going to be in your workplace, and it's going to be in the places you regularly visit. That is your appointed place to minister, okay? Who should you do ministry with? The right people. We should be serving with other believers in ministry. And it looks two ways. It could look like what we're seeing Jesus do here, which, which would be developing others, okay? developing others into greater faithfulness, or if you're not at the point where you're developing others, then you're being developed by others. Okay? And so that's what it would look like, where you were being discipled, or maybe you're at the in-between point where you're still being developed and you are developing others. Either way, the context of biblical ministry is to be done in the right place with the right people, where we're building each other up. So what's left for us then this morning is to see the what, the what of ministry. What did Jesus do? Verses 23 through 25 give us a really good description, and it's going to teach us a lot of things about what we should be doing in ministry. Now, last time I mentioned, I kind of ended with this idea that it does us absolutely no good to minister in the right place with the right people if we're not doing the right things. Okay, the who and the where are meaningless if you don't get the what right. Okay, if you get the what wrong, it's all for nothing. So let's not get the what wrong. Okay, let's take a look at what Jesus does so that we can understand what our text is teaching us and then we could see how to apply these principles to our own faithful ministry. At the end of the day, the faithfulness code is having the right understanding and right application of where, who, and what. Okay, so with Jesus... We're going to see that the what consists of three things. And when those three things are done faithfully, it's going to be an effective and faithful ministry, right? Now, in the case of Christ, because he does these three things, we're going to see two results that follow. So if you want to know how to break up these three verses, verse 23 is the what. It's the three things Jesus is doing. Verse 24 is the first result. Verse 25 is the second result of that. So it kind of gives you a roadmap of, of what we're going to see with this. So look with me at verse 23. It tells us this. It says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, before I break this down, I also want us to look at another verse in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Pay attention to what it's saying here. It says, Jesus continued going all around, or going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Now, did you catch that? 
these two verses say almost exactly the same thing. He's going all around, and he does the same three things. So there's two quick things I want to point out about that. First, that shows us that this is what Jesus does, okay? So when we're looking closely at the what of faithful ministry, just know that this is not isolated to our passage this morning. This is Jesus's normal mode of operation. So it should be our normal mode of operation. And then the second thing I need to say about that is that Matthew put these near identical verses where he did on purpose. The technical term for what he is doing is called an inclusio. Sounds complicated, but just think of bookends, okay? Think of bookends. Picture you got a bookshelf, and on one shelf you got quite a bit of room, and you have all your cookbooks together, but there's other books on that shelf as well, and you don't want those other books getting mixed with your cookbooks. So what do you do? You put all the cookbooks together, and you put a heavy bookend here, and you put a heavy bookend there on the right and the left, and then it holds all the cookbooks together. None of them fall down, and pretty much what it tells you is everything between those two bookends belongs with each other. Everything outside of it is outside. It doesn't belong with it, right? And that's what's happening here. Remember, I told you that Matthew divides his gospel into five big sections. So how do you know when one section ends and another section begins? He gives us bookends. He gives us an inclusio. So we have a verse that starts one section. Then when that section's officially over, he's going to say the same thing again. And really, that marks the end of the section and then the beginning of the next one. So it's like having your books arranged on a bookshelf. So what that lets us know then with verse 23, as we are now entering into Matthew's first section of the book of Matthew, and everything between Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, all the way to chapter 9, verse 35, it's the first section. It all goes together, belongs in between those two bookends, okay? So you might be wondering, why did I explain that? Couldn't have I just jumped into the text and started explaining what Jesus is doing? Yes, I could have, but I didn't want to. No, just kidding. Look, here's the thing. The goal of expositional preaching is not only to explain the text. That's the big part, right? But it's also meant to teach you how to read the text, to teach you how to read the text rightly and accurately for yourself. Okay, when you're on your own, you could open it, you could read it, you can know what to look for. So I just gave you a very important key on how to read Matthew. Look for the bookends, okay? So with that, let's get into the text. Let's start with the first part of verse 23. It says, Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee. Remember, this is the right place. Capernaum is the city where he bases his operations, but he's constantly, what we're going to see in this book, is he's constantly moving around Galilee, doing his ministry from town to town, city to city. We know from other passages that during this time, he will be limiting his ministry to Jews in the region. Even though they're surrounded by a lot of Gentiles, remember the gospel is first to the Jews because they're the ones who even had the promises and were awaiting the Messiah in the first place. Once it goes to them, then yes, it will go to the Gentiles. So for that reason, most of the ministry is going to be directed to Israel, though there will be one Gentile in this section that he will do something great for. But again, it's presented as uh, exceptional rather than the norm. Okay, So we have to ask ourselves in this verse, what does Jesus do? Well, we just read the main verb. He's going around, right? He's traveling, okay? But what he does as he's going around, what he does in those places is going to, uh, is going to be answered by three participles. And I know you're not here for, you know, grammar class. So I'm going to make this quick. A participle is an adjective that acts like a verb, okay? They tell you how the verb is often being carried out. In English, a good rule of thumb is that you look for a word ending with I-N-G. I know it sounds like we're going back to third grade, right? The I-N-G words. If it's an ing word, it's likely a participle in the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, hey, my fifth grade teacher told me it's a gerund. They're right in English. But in the Bible, if you see I-N-G, we're talking about a participle. Now, again, if you want to know the what of Jesus's ministry, look for three I-N-G words in this text. I'm going to read them. Look at the rest of verse 23. It says, he went all over Galilee doing what? Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Okay, that tells us then what he does. That is the what of ministry. He teaches, he preaches, and he heals. Okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look closely at these, and we're going to break these down so that we can rightfully understand them. 
First, Matthew tells us he was, quote, teaching in their synagogues. Now, the word teaching is from the Greek verb didasko, which is rich in meaning, okay? Typically, it refers to teaching doctrine, okay? Often, when this word is used of Jesus' teaching, he's instructing people about three things. He's telling them about God, the kingdom of God, and how we're supposed to live. That's usually what he's teaching. But this word is also used when Jesus gives a a decision on an ethical question, right? So that would also be his teaching as well. But for the most part, it's about God, it's about the kingdom, it's about how we're supposed to live. It's a broad word, but our text is going to help us narrow this down because of the location. Where does it tell us he's teaching? It says in the synagogues. Now, this is the first time the word synagogue appears in the Bible. You don't see synagogues in the Old Testament, okay? So where'd they come from? Well, simply put, there's 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. This is called the years of silence. God was not revealing any more revelation to his people. So what do you do when you have 400 years of silence? What the Jews did is they took all the words from God that they had, what we call the Old Testament, and they divided it into three major sections, the law, the prophets, and the writing, or in Hebrew, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketubim. And if you ever wondered why Jews call their Old Testament the Tanakh, it's because they take the, th- uh, the first letter of each of those three words, and it's an acronym, Tanakh. It's the, it's the Old Testament. So they took what they had. And what they did is they studied it and studied it and studied it. The implied task is let's take what God has given us and let's read it and study it and learn as much as we can about God, his kingdom, and how we're supposed to live. The same three things. Now, those who studied the word and and were really gifted at it would gather other people around so that they could teach them. This eventually developed into the synagogue. By the time you get to the first century, this was a normal part of Jewish life. The synagogue is where the teaching about God, the kingdom, and how we live takes place. Happened on Saturdays. Now, for most weekdays, it was the center of community life. It's where people would get counsel from rabbis if they needed it. It's where boys went to school. And then on Shabbat or Sabbath, which is Saturday, that day of rest was also turned into a day of worship, kind of like what we do on Sundays. And so what they would do is they would gather There would be a call to worship, just like we have a call to worship, right? And then there would be prayers and songs. And then they would read the word of God. Now, there would be set words. They would have one set reading from the law and one set reading from the prophets. And it shifts from week to week. It's already figured out, okay? The word would be read. And then a teacher would get up and explain the word of God and tell you how to live according to it. Does that sound familiar? Hoping it does. Hoping it does. Now, it doesn't mean we're a synagogue, but obviously the way the church works came out of the synagogue. Now, what our text is telling us, because it's saying he was teaching, like this is his normal operation, it means he was a regular synagogue attendee, okay? Jesus was a practicing Jew. He was a regular synagogue attendee, and he took advantage of this place, of this setting. Remember, we're supposed to minister in the right place place. The synagogue was one of the right places. And so he would teach the word of God there. And that tells you that not all religious leaders opposed Jesus. Some synagogue rulers were even his followers, like Jairus, who we're going to see later that Jesus raises his daughter back from the dead. Now, given Jesus's miracles and his high-profile ministry, he was probably invited to speak at a lot of synagogues. And so he took advantage of that. He showed up and he taught them about God, the kingdom, and how we're supposed to live. Now, one thing that I want to point out is since it was in the synagogue, this kind of teaching was formal, okay? It's not the informal kind of teaching that he gives to the crowds when he's outside. Instead, this kind of teaching is like what we're doing right now, okay? It's different. Like when I evangelize somebody at Starbucks or I'm answering a religious question from somebody at my gym, that's informal teaching. It's not formal. It's informal. It's a dialogue that goes back and forth. Though my doctrine between here and there is the same, there I'm going to tailor the conversation to their questions and to their needs. I'm going to bring up the scriptures that the conversation calls for. Formal teaching, like what we're doing right now, is different, okay? Although I try to think about how what I'm going to say is going to help you guys, specifically, we landed on a text. We landed on Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, just like they did in synagogues. They landed on certain texts, and the text limits what I'm going to say. 
I'm here to explain the text because the text is the word of God. And so our text this morning is a summary of how Jesus did his ministry. So the sermon is then directed by that text, and my task formally is to show you what God's word is saying about ministry and about Christ, Okay, what God wants you to know. So the reason why I give the distinction between informal and formal teaching is when it tells us that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, it means he's given a text, and he's using that text to show them God, which is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's using that text to show them the kingdom of God and the ethics of God, how we're supposed to live as citizens in God's kingdom. And I can promise you, whoever was there heard the best teaching that was ever given on earth. If you were to show up with a paper and pen and hear our Lord teach, you'd run out of room taking notes and your hand would be all cramped and stuff like that because it was our Lord teaching. Now, with that said about teaching, let's consider the significance of this first thing that Jesus does as ministry. The first thing Matthew mentions is teaching. That tells you something. That tells you that the teaching of the word of God is the highest priority of any gathering of God's people. It is the focal point, the center point. It's what we are all here for. We're centered around his word, okay? We're here to hear God speak through the Bible. We're here to learn more about God and Jesus every time we gather. We're here to see our Lord Jesus in scripture more and more. And we're here to learn how to live obediently to God and to grow in Christ-likeness, okay? We're here to learn how to serve God more faithfully and what it looks like. And Jesus models all that for us here. Okay, but listen, when churches are more about putting on a show, they're not ministering like Jesus. When they're more about giving self-help messages that make people feel good rather than the word of God itself, then they're not ministering like Jesus. When they're afraid to boldly speak God's word because they fear offending people, then they're not ministering like Jesus because he offended people a lot. What is the point of drawing a crowd where all these ears are listening, if it's not to declare God's word with all earnestness and all boldness. That is why we gather. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, this makes sense, but how does this relate to you doing ministry then? If Jesus is teaching, but the way he's teaching is like a pastor, okay, how does this relate to you if you're not a pastor? Good question, okay? If this is part of the what, then yeah, not everybody's going to be standing on a stage teaching from a pulpit, okay? But that's not the only type of formal teaching there is, is there? There are a lot of kids we have crammed in a room over there that you would probably do a great job teaching the Bible to them. You probably would do a lot better than you think you would. And we got curriculum that helps with it anyway, right? So it's not like you have to invent the stuff from scratch. And we get enough people, we'll have two classes and you'd only have to do it once every other month. But that is an opportunity for you to teach. But even more than that, more organically than that, If you serve regularly in this church, then you are serving with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you fellowship regularly, then you get close with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you have done either of these for any amount of time, then you know that the word of God frequently and consistently comes up in your conversations, right? That's what happens. The word of God comes up, okay? And so maybe in the course of a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ, someone's sharing how things are difficult for them right now. They're telling you how hard their life is in this moment, and you have a choice in that moment. You could take the lazy way out, and you could give them a platitude, a cliche. Well, just let Jesus take the wheel, man. Let go and let God. And I mock it. Although the statements in and of themselves are true, they're platitudes that don't help when somebody is in the midst of it. So you could take the lazy way out, or you could say, you know what? I know I've got a scripture that I could think of that I could help these people with, or I could help this person with. You know, the Psalms, for example, are filled with many prayers that begin with agony and despair. We, we read one this morning, but it ends in confidence of God. Can't you take them to a passage like that? Can't you like read it out loud to them and maybe stop and explain a couple points and then say, hey, let's pray this Psalm together? And if you did, is that not teaching? Is that not didasco? It most certainly is. Or perhaps a brother or sister has a sinful attitude. Is that not a good opportunity to gently open up the word and show them how to change the bad attitude and replace it with one that honors God? 
And listen, I'm not asking you to be Billy the Bible banger. You are not... You are not a fruit inspector. That's not your job. If you see yourself as a fruit inspector, I promise you, you're one of the worst hypocrites in this room. What this is, is if you see something that needs to be corrected, Galatians 6, 1 says you do it gently. And the way that you do it is you say, hey, look, this fruit isn't God-honoring, but this is the righteous opposite. This is what right looks like. And then you give them scriptures and you help them see it. Is that not teaching? That is teaching. Okay, so my point is, we all have many opportunities to teach within the context of God's people. That's what Jesus did here. It might not be on a stage, but it is teaching nevertheless. Now, I do want to throw this disclaimer out there, and I don't mean to sound harsh, but I got to say this with all earnestness. Please, for the love of our Lord, don't do it if you don't know the word. If you don't know the word, don't try to teach people what you don't know. Because what I found is a lot of people shoot for their, from their hip. They think what they're saying is from God, but it's not. It's just their opinion. And sometimes they encourage people into sin based on their opinion. Okay, we don't want that. In fact, I've had to clean up a lot of bad advice that people hear from their well-meaning friends. So, yes, we're supposed to teach. But the implied task is you got to know this. Okay, you got to get in the Word. you got to know what it says, right? That is part of the what of ministry. Learn what this says so that you could teach it to the people and the places that God has called you to so that they could hear God through His Word, okay? Pay attention to how we do it on Sunday mornings because it teaches you how to do it. Pay attention to how the small group leaders do it and so forth. Remember, last time I said part of discipleship is watching what your leaders do and listening and say, hey, I could go do the same thing. Right? So watch, learn, listen, and most importantly, study the word. <clears throat> and then you could, you could be doing the what of ministry here, teaching. Now, there's a, many more examples I could give, but I think it's, it's enough right now as long as we got these two applications. First, the church needs to, to center around the word. It needs to be centered around the word. And then second, there are situations where all of us are called to teach God's word to other believers. So make sure you're ready to do it, then do it. So moving from that then, from teaching, let's go to the second I-N-G word, the second ing, because that's the second what of ministry here. It tells us Jesus was, quote, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Now, given that this is a, a, a second thing and it's a different word, this is distinct from teaching. They're not exactly the same thing. They're related, but they're not exactly the same thing. It's a different word. It's keruso. Okay? And what this word means is it means to proclaim like a herald. And I've talked about heralds before. I'll give a quick uh, review of that. A herald in the ancient world was a trusted representative of a king. And so the king gives the herald a message, puts the message, <clears throat> and the phlegm, no, puts the message in the herald's mouth, right? It says, this is what you're to say to the people. And the herald is then expected to go all around the kingdom, telling everyone what the king has said. Now, a good herald, being a servant of the king, knows the mind of the king very well. And he knows the message so well that if needs be, he could even explain it in his own words. And it'll still accurately reflect what the king said. He could answer people's questions. He could even give rulings based on what he knows of the king's message. Now, a faithful herald will speak exactly the king's will. And if the people disobey the herald, if they blow him off, that's like disobeying the king because it's not the herald's words. It's the king's words. You're not rejecting the servant. You're rejecting the one who sent the servant. And so eventually the king will come in judgment. Okay. Now, most heralds were good and trustworthy. That's how they got the job. But there were some that were not. Okay, And they would twist the king's message. They would say what's popular with the crowd rather than what the king actually wills. They would downplay the warnings from the king because they don't want to offend the crowd. They would even reduce the commands of the king if the commands were going after like a cultural sin that the people liked and embraced. So they would, they would reduce it. They would water it down to stay popular with the people. And boy, there are a lot of preachers doing that today, aren't there? It's pathetic, right? Eventually... The king shows up, and the people aren't doing what they were supposed to do. They're disobeying the message, and so the king comes in judgment. And then the king finds out the herald watered it down, and he gets judged as well. Okay? He judges the people for listening to a false message. They should know better, and he judges the false messenger. And it's going to be the same thing with Christ when he returns, because there's a lot of false heralds out there. Now, the reason why I bring up heralding is because when it says Jesus was, quote, preaching the good news of the kingdom, he's heralding. 
Okay? He is bringing the Father, the King's message to the people of Israel. He was telling them, the kingdom is at hand. And more importantly, if you look closely at our text, it says he was preaching what? The good news. The good news is the word evangelion. This is the word gospel. Gospel, okay? This is the word gospel, which gospel, good news, same thing. Same thing. This is the first time that the word gospel appears in Matthew. John the Baptist told the people they need to repent because judgment is coming. And Jesus said the same thing a little earlier in our text, okay? That's the bad news. We're all sinners. Judgment's coming, but there's good news. He's letting them know there's good news. There's a gospel that God has sent the Messiah to give sight to the blind, to heal the lame, to raise the dead, and to set the captives free. Ultimately, the Messiah has come to forgive us of sin and grant us eternal life. But we need to repent and believe. Okay, so it's good news. There's a way of escape, but we got to turn away from our sins and we got to surrender to Jesus. We got to believe. Okay, so Jesus was faithfully delivering this message from God to the people, and he was not watering it down, okay? So what that lets us know then is in this context then preaching, since it's not in the synagogue, it's more informal since it's going to be more evangelistic, okay? As I said, he's outside for this, not in the synagogue. The doctrine's going to be the same, okay? But since he's preaching to crowds, it's going to be a little different. The crowds are going to be mixed between believer and unbeliever. So he's going to tell them about the kingdom. He's going to tell them about the good news. He's going to tell them what it's like. When he's talking to the crowds, he's like, hey, it's like a pearl of great price. Or it's like a tiny little seed, a mustard seed, and then it grows and becomes huge. Or it's like a treasure you bury in a field, and you know it's worth more than everything you have, so you sell everything you have to go buy that field. So he's teaching the crowds. He's telling them, don't miss the opportunity to enter into the kingdom. He then tells them, listen, salvation is when you come to me. Jesus said, come to me because he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so that's what he's preaching to the crowds, right? It's the gospel. Now, I do want to say, though, just because the context of this verse has his preaching informal and his teaching formal, do understand that it could be swapped. Sometimes his teaching will be informal and his preaching will be formal. In this case, he's teaching in the synagogue and preaching in the crowd, but sometimes he's preaching in a synagogue and teaching in a crowd. So don't divide these words up too much. Instead, here's how you need to think about it. Preaching and teaching are related, okay? And so what what we should do is we should make the distinction in our heads between teaching and preaching to unbelievers and teaching and preaching to believers because it's going to be a little different. Let me start with believers, okay? As a preacher, on Sunday mornings, I'm going to do what the Bible tells me to do. What does the Bible tell me to do? 1 Timothy 4.13. Paul tells Timothy, a preacher, he says, Until I come, give your attention to the public reading, exhortation, and teaching. That's what it looks like for believers. Three things, actually, right? Three components. You read the text itself. We did that, and we stood up for it. And I keep rereading the verses as we come across to it. Then you teach what the text means. And then you exhort the people of God to apply the principles of the text. And also, every sermon's going to contain the gospel. Why? First, for the sake of those who are unbelievers who may be visiting. That way they could hear the call and invitation of Jesus to believe and be saved. But also, it's for the sake of believers. The more you hear the gospel preached up here, the easier it is for you to tell others about it because you hear it again and again. Now, when we're preaching or teaching to unbelievers, it's going to be a little different. It's not necessarily going to stem from an exposition of a text, but instead you're acting as God's herald. It's more situational. A situation comes up in which now you are calling someone to the Lord. You're delivering his message. You're saying, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And you're telling them there's one way of escape, and that way is Jesus Christ. See, the gospel, when you're preaching to unbelievers, the gospel is like the whole thing. It's the whole center of it. When you're preaching to believers, it's really the results of the gospel is, is, is what we're hitting. But to the unbeliever, you're, you're telling them the gospel, but you're also teaching them theology. You're teaching them the basics. To preach the gospel, you have to tell them about God being the creator who made everything. You have to tell them about us being made in his image, having dignity, and therefore we must answer to him. You also got to tell them about our sin. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our guilt, okay, we are objectively guilty before the courtroom of God, and God is 
infinitely holy and he's just and a just God must condemn sin. But then you tell them how God makes a way, though, a way of salvation through the work of Jesus. And then you have to explain the work of Jesus. So it's teaching. It's basic, but it's still teaching. And the goal is to get them to turn from their sins and believe. Okay, it's preaching, it's teaching, right? The final goal is salvation when we're talking to the unbeliever. When we're talking to the believer, the goal is for them to grow, to grow in Christ-likeness. And so that's why they're going to be slightly different. When believers, it's probably going to be more formal. With unbelievers, it's going to be more informal, okay? Now, Jesus was the faithful herald of the Father, and he was telling people all over Galilee the truth that the Father told him to say. He told them the good news. So this was both evangelism of the lost and instruction for the saved. And so, loved ones, this kind of preaching is also part of the what of all of our ministries, not just mine, not just Pastor Josh's and Pastor Brian's and Pastor John's. All of us are preachers in one form or another. And so the question is, are you preaching as a herald the gospel of the kingdom of God? Okay, are you encouraging fellow believers with gospel truths to help them grow in gospel living? And when you talk to either believer or unbeliever about the gospel and about kingdom living, do you water it down to be less offensive as if you're embarrassed about it or scared of their response? Don't be. As a church, do we ever water down the word of God to draw a crowd? I don't think we do, and I pray we don't. And it's my prayer that it'll never be the case of this church or any of us here that we will be bold and accurate with what we tell people from the word of God. Now, last week, I suggested that the ways we could preach the gospel of the kingdom to people in our places. I mentioned one way is get to know them, neighbors, coworkers, take an interest in them as people, not just projects. Be patient with them, knowing that it might take years for your gospel witness to, to penetrate that heart of stone right? Be strategic in finding ways to invite them into situations where they can see you with other believers, like Super Bowl parties. Come over to my house or whatever. We're having chicken wings and nachos. It's going to give us indigestion, but maybe the game will be good. And then they come over and you have a bunch of Christian buddies there as well. And now what are you doing? They're seeing how Christians interact with each other and how, hey, these guys have fun too, but in a non-sinful way. And now they know more Christians than just you. And now you're building a team because your Christian buddies now are helping you try to evangelize this lost person, this lost soul. So you got the where, you got the who, okay? And and then you got the what, because in this friendship, you are telling them the gospel. You're, You're being that faithful herald. You're telling them about God and about sin and about the way of escape, about the gospel, about God's love, right? You're showing them their need of it, and you're presenting to them the way to receive it. Now, If this person's normal, because people are normal, they might just push back with questions. Very rarely does somebody say, that all makes sense, I'm in. I mean, those are great. When it happens, be like, you know. But a lot of times, people are going to push back with genuine questions or even gotcha questions. And just be patient. Teach them the truth with Scripture, okay? That is all part of the what of ministry. And when it's combined with the who and the where, it will indeed be both effective and faithful. Now, there is one more component of the what. It tells us that in addition to teaching and preaching, Jesus was also, quote, healing every disease and sickness among the people, end quote. Now, the first two, teaching and preaching, were Christ ministering. That was Christ ministering to the soul, right? But human beings are souls that have a body. And our body is important. It needs to eat. It needs to be cared for. There were ancient heretics back then called Gnostics that taught that our bodies are inherently evil and our soul is inherently good. So what you do with your body doesn't matter. One day you're going to die and the bird will be set free from the cage. Well, listen, that's not true. The Bible says just the opposite. Both the soul and the body were made perfect and upright by God. Now with Adam Adam and Eve and the fall, our body has been corrupted by sin, but so is our soul. Both the soul and the body are corrupted by sin. But even apart from that corruption that comes from sin, both the soul and the body are still to be respected and cared for. And that's what the scripture shows us and teaches us. So when you pay close attention to the ministry of Jesus, he cared for both. Later in his ministry, we will see him multiply food to feed 5,000 people. And why does he say he did it? 
because he's like, I don't want them collapsing from hunger on the way home. That was a stated reason. He cared about their physical health. He cared about their body. And just about every city and town he goes to, he will heal people of all sorts of illnesses and disabilities. And as we saw, sometimes he will feed them. Jesus doesn't just focus on the soul. He also provides care and relief for afflicted bodies. And yet, Jesus doesn't just focus on the body, though, or on the physical needs. In fact, his greater emphasis is always on the heart. He hits both, but the heart first and then the body. Now, listen, this corrects two extremes that we often see among those who claim to be believers in our day. In America, in our suburban communities, this corrects two possible extremes. One extreme is some people act as if Jesus only cares about spiritual matters. It's almost like they're acting like Gnostics, okay? So they'll use this as a cover to ignore the homeless and to look the other way when it comes to things like inner city poverty or even just to blame them, right? And there might be some degree of that, but it's a lot more complicated than that. You now have a whole generation of young people who've come of age and they are saying if that is Christianity, then they want nothing of it since it seems unconcerned with real world problems. It seems like a bunch of middle-class suburbanites are justifying their comfortable lifestyles and they're using their religion to turn a blind eye to real suffering in the world. And I got to say, at first I hated hearing that, but as I've thought more about it, they're not wrong in their critique. And when you look at Christianity all over the rest of the world, it is not like this. They take care of the poor better than anybody else. And that's actually been the story of Christianity throughout all of history until recently, okay? And mainly just here and in Europe, okay? But everywhere else, it's different. So they're not wrong in their critique of what they said, but here is where they are wrong. Okay, they are wrong where they think it's all about physical needs. To them, the spiritual doesn't matter as much. Instead, people should be able to believe what they want. You know, I should be able to have God my way. It's like Burger King. It's customizable. And it doesn't work that way, right? They think God should accept people just for being sincere. It's authentic, man. Who's God to tell them what they're supposed to believe? It's like, let me get this straight. Believing in God, it's not based on objective reality. It could be whatever we want it to be, but when it comes to helping the needs of people, now it's objective and it has to be your way. See, they have their own extreme. They've got it wrong as well. In fact, they're missing the more important piece. The spiritual matters more than the physical. Why? Because at the end of the day, you could fill a belly, but if you encourage them in the worship of other gods, you've encouraged them straight on a path to condemnation. You haven't in the long run helped them. So it's both spiritual and physical. And Jesus corrects both these extremes because he ministered the gospel to people just as our text said. He taught people as our text said. He took care of their greatest need, which is their status before God. But at the exact same time, he did not neglect their physical plight. Again, it says he was, quote, healing every disease and sickness among the people. And of course, there's some, there's some big theology to this, right? Now, the word healing... In Greek, this is the word therapuo, and I think you could see where our word therapy comes from, okay? And Jesus' ability to heal, though, is not like therapists or doctors today. His was unique. I mean, just the things that we're going to see him do, no one can do other than him, okay? And the reason for that is it was a sign. It was a sign that God was blessing Israel as he promised he would. If you go back to the law, to the Torah, to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15, Here's what God promised to Israel if they would obey his covenant. He said, the Lord will remove all sickness from you. He will not put on you all the terrible diseases of Egypt that you know about, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. Now, I want you to notice in that verse, what's God going to remove? Sickness and disease. And he says all of them, right? Now, notice what our text said in verse 23, that Jesus was healing every disease and every sickness among the people. Those two words together in this proximity is a clear callback to this passage in Deuteronomy. But Israel never got to experience God removing all disease and sickness from their land because of their sin. They were always rebelling against God. They weren't obeying the covenant. And eventually God exiled them, okay? And even though he let some people come back, there was never really the end of the exile. God never returned to Israel like he was there in the beginning, So what does it mean when the Messiah walks into Israel and with a mere word and touch, both disease and sickness flees from the people that he heals? It's telling Israel, God 
has finally visited us again. The exile is now over, which is amazing, right? So the healing was meant to do two things. It's meant to show the bigger theological truth that the Messiah is God. And in the Messiah, God has visited his people again. He's come to bring redemption and salvation, so that's all the spiritual. But second, it was also meant to relieve real human suffering. And it did. He did relieve real human suffering. And so if you put these two reasons together, it becomes clear that spiritual and physical components of ministry, they're not in conflict with each other. They complement each other. The healing takes care of the physical problem, but it also can show the greater spiritual reality that through Jesus, God is seeking and saving the lost. And when we're out there and we are his hands of mercy, it's the same thing. It's the same with us. We need to be teaching the word of God and preaching the gospel in all of our places, doing so with the right people, but we also need to be concerned with people's physical needs when they have them. Consider what James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, writes in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. I don't know how many times like we could read this every year, and it's like we remember it, and then we forget it two seconds later. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Interesting thing is this verse means a ton to Christians all over the rest of the world. Why is it here where we got the most that we could share that this is a passage that we often conveniently forget? Okay, we are supposed to be looking out for these things and caring for these things. When we preach the word of God and it is also accompanied by our loving giving of ourselves and our resources for the sake of others, then it only reinforces what we are teaching. So if our what of ministry is going to match that of the Lord, then we should be actively concerned with the physical needs of those we are preaching to. This is why at this church we have a mercy ministry. I would love to see this ministry grow to be one of our biggest ministries. Okay, Now, it's kind of cool. Brenda's got all these backpacks set up in there with goodies that will help uh, homeless people. So when they bang on the door when I'm here, I could give them one of those backpacks. And I could give them gospel tracts. And most of the time, I'll preach the gospel to them before they leave. Um, it's almost like, here, I'll hand this to you after I'm done. I give them a message, and here you go, right? And so, so the thing is, and we also, with this ministry, we help vulnerable women and children that are in shelters. In fact, we had a clothing drive this week that ended yesterday that was specifically to help vulnerable women and children in shelters. I think we need to grow this. I think this is the type of ministry that requires all hands on deck because all of us are supposed to in some way be teaching, preaching, and healing. And that's part of the healing. That's part of the taking care of the physical, okay? And so I, I do pray that the, the army will be summoned and the troops will arrive um, in all of this, teaching, preaching, and acts of mercy. Now, I do also want to say one more thing on this, one thing to add. Don't assume that there's nothing we can do also when it comes to healing. I mean, do we not believe the words that are in this? Now, I'm not going to get into whether or not the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are still active among believers today, mainly because my time is limited, and I covered that in a lot of sermons in 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 through 14. So you could go revisit it. 14 hours later, when you've got through them all, we could talk, okay? But I will say this. I've prayed over others, and I've seen instantaneous healing multiple times. I'll give you a couple of the more phenomenal examples of this. There was a woman with a lump in one of her organs that was supposed to be fatal in 2017, and the elders here, we met with her. We anointed her with oil, as the book of James says. We put our hands on her, and we prayed, and all of us felt the work of the Holy Spirit in that moment. And we're not surprised that uh, I think a week later, she went to the doctor and they said, we don't know how, but that lump is completely gone. It was gone. And again, that happened here. Well, actually in our other building, but it happened here with four of our elders that were, were here at the time. Okay. And so there was another instance where I was driving to Phoenix for the Southern Baptist annual convention, also back in 2017. And one of our members needed a, a life-saving surgery for his heart, but his vitals, like, and I don't know what this all means. I'm not a medical guy. Carlos will rebuke me for my botched explanation later, but his numbers were off, whatever that means. And because his numbers were off, they could not do the surgery without killing him. 
Yet he would die without the surgery. It was only a matter of time. And so they called us when he was at the hospital. They're ready for the surgery, but now they can't do it. The family's disappointed. So myself and a young man, Daquan, one of our members at the time, we were driving to Phoenix together. We prayed through the phone. And we both felt the Holy Spirit moving in the prayer. And no joke, the next morning, the wife of the person texted us to let us know that right when we got off the phone, his numbers went up and they were able to do the surgery. Okay, This kind of stuff happens. Does it happen every time we pray? No, because it's all left to the will of God. But it does happen. Okay, And so each of these cases, there was a where, there was a who, and there was a what. In the case of the woman, the where was here at church, the who was the elders, and the what was praying over her and anointing her with oil. With the man who was in need of the surgery, the where was as we were driving. Good thing we got cell phones, right? The who was me and Daquan, a young man I was discipling, and the what was praying for him, fully expecting and being fully faithful that God can do this thing. And we felt that he was going to do this thing, and he did. And so again, consider ways to pray for the healing of others and consider ways to provide physical care when needed. Consider the where, the who, and the what of this. And by the way, if everything I said there, if you're like, wow, is he advocating the healing? Listen, there's two ways you can interpret what I said, and I'm going to leave it at that. That way I could escape unscathed. It is either God just answering prayer or it's God in that moment giving us the gift of healing. I leave it to you right now, because as I said, I'm not going to get into it. So anyway, all right. So with the example of Christ, we see a robust description of the what of ministry, teaching, preaching, and healing. And when we think intentionally about it, I think we could see how in general we are able to minister in the same three ways. It won't be as magnificent as what Christ did, but we could still provide care to the soul and the body the best we can. So that all covers the what of ministry. I got through one of two verses, and you're looking at your watches and saying, oh no, but don't worry, the last two verses are a lot faster. The two results we could get through really quickly. So let's see the two results of this. Look at verse 24 for the first result. It says, Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Okay, so when we put this together, what's the first result? It tells us news about him spread throughout all of Syria. Okay, now Syria... To the Romans, that meant all of Israel, but Matthew probably has in mind from Damascus and Syria down to Galilee. Still a pretty big chunk of land. And throughout that area, word spread. And when word spreads, what happens? More people want to come and see what it's all about. So then we keep reading. In verse 24, it says, So they brought to him all those who were afflicted. News gets out, more people come, right? And since Jesus' ministry was faithful, it's effective, Listen, when you teach and preach and heal in the right place with the right people, I think the word is going to spread. And when the word spreads, you're undoubtedly going to get to provide more teaching, more preaching, and more healing, in a sense, to even more people. Okay, And I've been noticing this a lot here at Sovereign Way. Every Wednesday night, our youth group, those teachers bring the word of God to these teenagers. And it's not like what you hear about in youth groups all around the country where they stay away from the tough subjects and really just want to keep these kids in a bubble. No, they actually address the tough topics, the tough subjects that these kids are dealing with. They take questions on the most pressing issues. And since the kids are receiving biblical teaching and gospel preaching that actually speaks to the concerns of their hearts, what do they do? They tell their friends about it. You got to come to my youth group. You want to hear about God? This is where you're going to hear about him. And so every Wednesday, it's like we got kids, like where are they coming from? But that's good. And then it's the same thing with the young adult ministry. Every meeting at that young adult ministry lately, there have been new visitors, okay? The young adults are finding that the teaching at the Penson's house and the the preaching, they find it compelling and helpful. So what do they do? They start telling other young people who also have these questions and want to know about God. And so they're showing up and they're hearing it. See, people want to hear and see more of the biblical Jesus being preached. What they don't want are the counterfeit Jesuses that are out there. But when it's the real deal, people want to see what it's all about. And quite honestly, to me, it seems like it's happening on Sunday mornings here as well. I mean, you guys, you desire the expositional preaching. You appreciate also the loving welcome that you get each and every week and how everybody here just loves each other. And Albert makes good coffee and make sure that you know that he makes good coffee and all that good stuff. And so then what happens... (laughs) 
<laughs> and then what happens is you tell others about Sovereign Way. And, it, and it, now right now it doesn't look like it. It's like, where's everybody at? But the last couple of weeks, we've been barely able to fit people here. And it's because everybody's just telling people, you got to come and hear what's being preached and you got to drink Albert's coffee. And, and they know people are going to come and they know that they're going to be loved and, and cared for. And so all of that is the result of doing the right things in the right places with the right people. That's what Jesus models for us. He cared for people. He taught them the truth. He helped them in their urgent needs. This then caused word to spread, which then gave him even more opportunity to do these things to more people. And I think we're seeing the same happen here. Now, the text specifically tells us that the people who come are going to be helped. Okay, as more people come, he's going to help them. They're afflicted, and Matthew's going to tell us what they're afflicted with. He says, quote, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, okay? And Matthew tells us that he healed them. He healed them. Now, let me just quickly explain these words. Various diseases is a Greek word that refers to various diseases, okay? That simple, right? There's a lot of diseases all over the world. This is them, okay? The intense pains literally means the torment and the physical pain that you get from these diseases. When you get sick and you get sick with something bad, it hurts, it just does. Jesus healed both the root and the fruit. He healed the disease and the symptoms, the pains that came from it. Okay, then it goes on to mention specifically the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics. And, and we'll see detailed examples of Jesus healing each of these kinds of folks throughout the book. Again, this is just a summary. Now, the epilepsy is a disease, as we know, of the central nervous system. And the interesting thing is Jesus was able to heal it with a mere word. Modern medicine cannot make epilepsy go away. They could reduce the symptoms, but even then they can't get rid of all the intense pains or the torments, okay? But Jesus was able to remove the disease itself with the pain. That's something he can do, okay? Now, paralytics does not refer to what we call paralysis today. Paralysis today is very specific, you know, where just your body doesn't work, okay? What paralysis meant back then was any condition that prevented you from being able to move around. So it included modern paralysis, but it's not limited to that. In fact, if you broke your leg back then, there's a good chance you're never going to walk again. It's going to heal wrong, and, and, and you're now going to be an invalid. Or if you broke your arm the wrong way, same type of thing. You might lose the use of it. Or if you got leprosy and it ate away one of your appendages, you had both leprosy and you were a paralytic. Okay? Jesus was able to heal all of these, and he did. And again, we're going to see this throughout Matthew. Okay? And as he was teaching, and as he was preaching, and as he was healing in the appointed place with the right people, it's just going to keep drawing more and more and more. Now, Matthew also mentions Jesus healing demon-possessed people. So I do just want to say just a couple things about this. Loved ones, we act like this is back then and not today. But man, if you're around enough people, you're going to see people who have demons. Demon possession still happens today. And I am convinced that as believers, just like with healing, we can help. There are two people in this church that were healed from either demonic oppression or demonic possession. One young man was at the high school I used to work at. As you guys know, I taught high school for 15 years. And my last year there, before I came here to work full-time, this young man started having uh, nightmares for almost a half of a year. He said he was seeing demons. Um, he couldn't sleep. He was seeing crazy stuff. It started making him anxious. And he actually felt like he was starting to go crazy. He went to doctors. They could not rightly diagnose it. None of the meds were helping. So eventually he told me about it. And so what did I do? I asked him to come in during lunch. Jesse Lee, who's a member here, was also a teacher there. I'm like, hey, man, I need you to come with me. And there's a math teacher, a grumbling math teacher, but a believer nevertheless. And so then he comes in, and all three of us lay our hands on this person. We prayed for him, and at that very moment, he was relieved of the symptoms and nightmares, and the visions left and never returned. That was six years ago, and they have not returned. And this person is a gem for the kingdom of God, a gem for this church. I'll let him tell you if he wants you to know who he is. But no, he was afflicted, and it was the moment we laid our hands on him and prayed that he was freed, right? And then there was another young man here who used to be into actual Satanism, actually worshiped the devil, and he was possessed. 
And he attended a Wednesday night service once, and oddly, at the beginning of the sermon, he just sprinted out of the auditorium. Never saw that before. It wasn't a walkout. It was a sprint. Um, So I followed him to see what was going on, and Jamie followed as well to make sure he wasn't a physical threat and wasn't going to jump on me and pull my eyeballs out. Um, And so the, the person was distraught. They were crying over, over many things. So I took him to my office, preached the gospel to him, and asked him to confess that Jesus is Lord. Every time he tried, his mouth like it was glued shut. He could say anything else, but I'm like, dude, just say Jesus is Lord. He's like, he couldn't. And then he told me that it's an evil spirit that wouldn't let him do it. And again, he was playing around in, in this stuff for his whole life. And so at that moment, I said, well, if there's an evil spirit here in the name of Jesus, get out of here. You got no authority here. You can't withstand the name and power of Jesus, so go. And then right after that, this young man was able to say, Jesus is Lord. And at that moment, all the weight was lifted off of him, and he became a believer. He was forgiven. He felt the love that he always wanted to feel, and he also is a gem in this church, and most of us could not imagine not knowing him and not having him here. Now, I'm not telling you all this so that we could hit the street doing exorcisms, okay? That's not what this is about, okay? What I'm telling you is that Jesus is Lord and the demons are terrified of him. And in the New Testament, we see the disciples cast out spirits in the name of Christ and in his authority a lot. And Jesus told us that Satan, the strong man, has been bound and his house can now be plundered. So Jesus is the name above all names. Now, I'm not telling you every time you pray over somebody, it's going to happen. But what I can say is I've seen it enough to where we can help with this too. Now, I want you to think about these two examples that I just gave. In the first one, it happened in my appointed place, work, right? I was a high school teacher. That's where I worked, okay? The afflicted student knew I was a believer and asked for prayers. I had a who? I had a team, Jesse Lee and the grumbling math teacher, okay? So I had the team, and and we prayed, okay? And then, uh, so there's the where, there's the who, and then the what was we prayed over him, right? That he'd be relieved of his torment, Okay, so that was there, and it was faithful and effective because God answered the prayer. With the second example, the where was here at church, and the obvious, which is an obvious place of ministry. The who was myself, and then Jamie standing guard because faithful security team, you know. And uh, and the what was preaching the gospel, the word, and then praying that whatever uh, evil spirit wasn't letting him confess the lordship of Jesus, that it would go. That was the what, and the Lord answered, and his soul was saved that day. So the ministry was faithful and effective. So the point is, okay, the point that we should walk away with is that faithful and effective ministry rightly combines the where, the who, and the what of ministry. We see it with Jesus, and I promise you, you will see it in your own ministry if you get out there and actually do this stuff. Do the teaching, the preaching, and the the healing, in a sense, the taking care of people's needs. Now, it tells us the second result in verse 25. It builds off the first. It says, large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jordan. Okay, so more people come and see is the first result. The second result is a lot of people follow him. A lot of crowds. And is that not why we're here? Don't we want more people to follow Christ, to come to know Christ? That's why we do what we do. And what's interesting is by him mentioning all these places, Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, he's mentioning every part of Israel that was conquered by Joshua 1,400 years earlier. And now a new Joshua, Jesus, name means the same thing, comes and he brings liberation, spiritual liberation to the same exact place, ending the spiritual exile. And now he's unleashed us to go all over the globe to do the same thing. That is our job as the church. So... As I wrap up and reflect on what we've seen in Jesus's ministry in our text this morning, it makes me think of a common complaint that's often made by non-believers, non-Christians in our society. They often say that they want nothing to do with Christianity because the church is filled with hypocrites. You've heard that a lot, right? And that is true, unfortunately. There are way too many hypocrites. They also point out the poor track record of many Christians in history and even in our society right now. Listen, If anyone here this morning is thinking in those terms, let me challenge you with this. You are looking at the wrong thing. Christianity is all about Christ. Look at him. What is he like? How did Jesus minister? He was no hypocrite, 
Okay, we saw in our text that he cared deeply about the lost. He gave them what they needed most, the word of God. He explained to them what their greatest need was. Additionally, he also healed their afflictions. He helped their physical condition. Yes, his followers fail at times, but you are not being called to follow the failures of his followers. You are being called to follow him. And he is the one who is perfect. And let's be fair, if you've actually examined the history of Christianity, there's a lot of instances where the church does it right. The Roman Empire, for example, could not ignore the fact that the Christians took care of their own poor and the rest of the poor of the society better than anyone else. And the Christians themselves were poor. And Pastor John, when he went to Vietnam a couple months ago, North Vietnam is a communist country. Christianity is illegal there, but they allow it. Why? Because they keep saying these Christians are doing more for our people than anyone else. That is the norm of what's happening all over the world. So there is a good track record for those who follow Christ. And if you like hospitals, if you like the scientific method, and if you like the university, that's also the fruit of Christianity as well. Yes, there is some bad, but there's a lot of good. But even then, that's irrelevant. Because you're not being called to follow the followers. You're being called to follow Christ himself. Honestly, I think your rejection of Christ is far less about your problem with hypocrites because you likely realize you're a hypocrite as well. All of us are hypocrites to some degree. So I think often this is raised as an excuse. I think the real reason at the end of the day uh, that people don't want to come to Christ is because this perfect Jesus doesn't allow you to do whatever sin your heart is set on doing. He is the king. And you don't want a king over you other than yourself. And to surrender to him means he will be king over you. So what do people do? They make up things about God. Well, God must be like this. And, and I would never follow a God that wouldn't let people do that or whatever. And the bottom line is, you don't know that. You just made it up. You just made it up. You've never met God. You've never talked to him. He speaks to us in his word. It's a crazy gamble to ignore what the real God has actually said in his word, all because you hope something that you made up is true. That's a crazy gamble. So stop gambling on it. The fact is this. You are a sinner just like the rest of us. And God is a holy God and a righteous judge. And one day you will stand before him and you will give an account. And because you are guilty of sin, you will be condemned. And the verdict is both correct and just. When the books are opened and billions of your sinful actions and thoughts are read back to you, you're going to be like, oh man. I am as bad as they're saying. I'm as guilty as he says. And so the verdict is the right verdict. But listen, this beautiful Jesus we read about this morning, he came for more than just preaching and healing. He came to live a life of moral perfection, the very thing we failed to do. And he did it not for himself, but he did it so he could give us the credit of his morally perfect life. He did it for us. He came the first time not to bring the judgment that our sin deserves, but to take upon himself the judgment our sin deserves, to take into his own account all the sins of everyone who would believe on him, and then to pay their penalty on the cross, and to die, and to raise on the third day. Think about it. He is the only innocent, sinless person to ever walk this earth, to ever live, and he was treated as if he was guilty of all of our sins put together. And if that's not uh, mind-blowing enough, Jesus is not just a normal man. He is the very God who made us. He is the one who is the judge, but he became a man so he could first be our defense attorney, so that he could take our sins upon himself, pay the penalty, and then say, I paid for this person so they don't have to be judged for their sin anymore. And then what about our perfect score? He, we don't have one, so he earned it for us, so that everyone who believes on him He's like, no, their score is perfect. They get the credit for everything that I have done. He did that for us because he loves us. So you're going to have a problem with him? Who's better than Christ? So make no more excuses. We're calling you to Christ, not hypocrites. Turn from your sin, repent. Turn from your sin and believe on him. Do it today. We're going to be praying in a minute. And while I'm praying, you can say to Jesus that, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm turning away from my sins. And I believe that, Jesus, you are Lord. I believe that, that God raised you from the dead, that you died for my sins. And if you say that and you believe it, you really believe it, you'll be saved. And then after service, come find me. Come talk to me because I'd gladly like to tell you more, okay? So turn to him today. And for those who already believe, let's be faithful and effective in our ministry. Let's minister in the right place with the right people, doing the right things of teaching, preaching, and healing. And let's not grow weary in this call. May our Lord be with us. Let's, let's go to him in prayer. God, we just thank you so 